It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Joe Seek. With more than 25 years of experience in the insurance industry, Joe is responsible for promoting and expanding the Beecher Carlson brand and footprint through client service, prospect development, and team recruitment and development. Joe began his career as a property underwriter for Arkwright Mutual and then developed and serviced a large book of risk management clients for Hobbs Group. He joined Beecher Carlson in 2004 and has held numerous sales and leadership positions in the company and currently serves as their CEO. Joe is a graduate of Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts in Finance and Marketing. Joe Seek, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. Oh, great to have you here. And uh, I'm out on the West Coast, so it's kind of an early, chilly morning. What's the weather like in Atlanta today? Uh, rainy and a little chilly. <laughs> so we got the identical climates, it sounds like. Well, we like to start uh, kind of a little bit with the early years. Tell us, uh, you know, where you grew up and what your early family life was like, Joe. Yeah, so grew up in a small town called Denver, Iowa. Most people will have a hard time figuring out where Iowa is, much less Denver, Iowa. But, <laughs> but anybody who's familiar with the state of Iowa, it's about, I don't know, an hour and 30 minutes north of Cedar Rapids. Right. And uh, my folks were both grew up in a big city. My dad was from Chicago originally, uh, met my mom in Omaha when he went to school in Creighton and worked for Walgreens out of college, moved around six times in, you know, his first four years of their marriage and then found a place where he was able to buy some acreage and nice. that was it. Wasn't going yeah. we to transfer anymore. Got it. Only child, brothers and sisters? Oldest of five. Got Oldest two of five. <laughs> have two sisters, have two brothers, and in fact, have an Irish twin. My my sister's 11 months younger than I am. Nice, nice. What were uh, your parents like? Educated? Did they go through college? Uh, kind of decided to, you know, settle down on the on the farm a little bit, right? So tell us about kind of that journey. Yeah. So my dad, like I said, my dad grew up in Chicago and went to uh, Creighton to go to pharmacy nice. school. Uh, my mother uh, went to nursing school, so they were both both educated, oh, yeah. both for both first generations to go to college. So nice. Uh, both worked in the healthcare industry, and um, both worked. You know, both of them worked as we were growing up. Right, right. And were they, um, you know, kind of uh, looking for a little more of a rural lifestyle? What what led them ultimately to Denver, Iowa? My dad got transferred to Waterloo with Walgreens and okay. Denver's about a half hour from Waterloo and 
he found this piece of ground and was nice. looking for, he was always an outdoors guy and liked to hunt and fish. And that was kind of his release from, you know, being in a working professional environment. Corporate setting. Yeah. Uh, did you take on They're that? still there today. Yeah. God, is that right? Great. And did you take on those, uh, those interests as well? Did you enjoy the outdoors and living in the country, so to speak? I did. Yeah. I did. In fact, uh, if you saw where I lived in Atlanta, even though I've lived in a big city, my entire professional career. Um, I, I live on the Chattahoochee River with ah. uh, a 800-acre nature preserve behind it. So there's nice. no, there's, nice. there, there's nobody behind me. It feels like I'm in the country in some respects. And then I've got a, a place up on Lake Lanier that we spend a bunch of time at. Excellent. Cool. I'm not, I don't do, don't do well with crowds. <laughs> nice to have that country release. What were some of the early, uh, you know, kind of inspirations that you got from mom and dad? Anything, you know, memories that you have from growing up? Yeah. I mean, both, both of them were really self-made people. And, um, my dad was a big believer in, you know, effort more times than not would, mm. you know, trump talent. And right. we, right. as the oldest of five, we were, we were a really active family. I mean, we had, we rode horses and we're part of a saddle club. And then as we got older and into school, uh, we played sports year round. And one of my earliest inspirations was Walter Payton. Um, oh, my, yeah. you know, being from Chicago, um, even though my dad's a Packer fan, uh, <laughs> my, my ties were to the Chicago bears and Walter Payton just exhibited, you know, that extra effort. He wasn't the biggest guy in the field, but right. you know, he just, every play gave it, you know, everything he had and became one of the greatest running backs, if not the greatest of all time. So that was one of the early inspirations was always just, you know, work harder and yep. good things are going to happen. Yeah, I love that. Did you play uh, football in school? I did. I played played football through through college. Actually, I played really? at a awesome. small small Division three school called Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa. Uh huh. Great. What position? I started off as a quarterback, but ended yeah. up uh, playing safety for three years. Yeah, awesome. Were you a good student in school? Back to the you know junior high, high school years. I was a good student mm -hmm. all the way through. Uh, graduated with honors from college. Congratulations! Uh, <laughs> and um, I joked that. Uh, you know, I only had 46 kids in my graduating class. I was the salutatorian, but the uh, valedictorian, he only got one B and that was in driver's ed. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to knock him for that. <laughs> what about outside of sports? Anything else that you enjoyed? You know, music, theater? Yeah. So, you know, going to a small school, everybody, you know, in the, in the fifth grade or fourth grade had to take an instrument. I actually played in the high school band uh, up through my junior year, played uh, trumpet. Hmm. Um, in addition, in addition, we had a, uh, pretty active music program. So participated in every high school play, you know, musical that they put on and nice. had, had the lead, lead role in guys and dolls as Guy Masterson. That was my claim <laughs> to fame. Fantastic. Oh, that's good fun. So it sounds like it was a pretty, uh, fun place to grow up. Uh, younger brothers and sisters, pretty active in their lives too. It sounds like you were all pretty close in age. Yeah, all the way through. So um, yeah. um, my youngest sister's eight years younger, but everybody else was just kind of stair-stepped right down the line. So um, everybody played sports year-round. Um, most of us most of us did the, the band and the music as well. So yeah, we were encouraged to participate. What about entrepreneurial things? Anything that you did younger, you know, had the ubiquitous paper route <laughs> or sold Christmas cards, that kind of stuff? 
so I grew up in a, uh, you know, in a pretty, pretty rural, rural, area. Yeah. rural yeah. community. So the entrepreneurial stuff was at, you know, at the age of eight or nine, uh, you know, would go work with farmers to help them bale hay. Right. Um, right. One of my, one of my, as soon as you were old enough to be able to, you know, lift a 50 pound bale of hay that somebody would hire you to put you in the hay mow. So you could stay, <laughs> you could stay pretty busy doing that. Probably the most, the earliest uh, experience that's a little different for most people is you can detassel corn in Iowa. Mm. So you can actually, uh, as a young person, once you turn 14, you can contract with the seed corn companies if you're not part of a regular crew to detassel corn. And most people say, what in the heck is that? What is that? Yeah. <laughs> so when you plant seed corn, you yeah. plant it where you have, back then it was four rows of female uh, corn, two rows of male corn. Don't ask mm. me know how, how they know the difference between yeah. the seed, but they do. Say, right. And and they plant it that way down the field. And what you have to do is so you, you don't get cross-pollination and you get the seed qualities you want is you actually have to take the tassel, the thing that looks like a flower at the top of a corn plant. You've got to take the tassel out of the female plants. Because that's where the seeds are. Yeah. Right. So, well, that's where the pollen is. So oh, the you, want the, is. you want the male, male plant to pollinate the female plants. Ah, so th God, those are great right. times. Um, the <laughs> first, first year, I mean, this is crazy to think about it today. Uh, I'm 54. So, you know, 40 years ago, uh, in the middle of a, you know, I think it was uh, outside of Dyke, Iowa. My, <laughs> I don't even have a driver's license. I was with a cousin of mine uh, who was 16 months older than I was. And my folks dropped us off in the middle of the country for seven days. We pitched a tent. Uh, really? had, a, had a cooler <laughs> and uh, detasseled, you know, 12 acres of corn. Wow. Did they feed that, you? That was our little project. We fed the ourselves. Corn. We fed <laughs> yourselves. Oh you my were self-sufficient. Self so wow. Wow. It's it pretty nutty thinking about it uh, today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but, but the good news was I only had to do that a couple of years. And then I went to work for my uncle who had a, a big and tall men's store. Okay. So I start, started working there when I was 15, worked every weekend, uh, Saturdays anyway, and probably twice a month on Sunday, one to five. And uh, as I got older and had my driver's license, I actually would do it once or twice a week at, during the evenings for them. Nice, nice. And did you do that all the way through college then too, working for Uncle? No, I, I did that up until my, um, through my freshman year. Uh, right. I'd come back in the summer and work with him. But then my sophomore year, um, I actually got a job driving a uh, route truck for Pep Pepsi Cola. Mm. Oh, yeah. So they had in the summer they had what they called swing drivers to fill in for vacation time. Right. So I had to get my chauffeur's license, learn how to drive a semi, and uh, slug cases of Pepsi. Yeah, yeah. Just going and you go and you restock them in the store as well. Did the whole bit, yep. right? Did the yeah. whole bit. Fantastic. And uh, what'd you do with all that pocket money from tasseling corn and <laughs> working in big and tall? Was this going towards college or did you have some things that you uh, enjoyed when you were a kid growing up, like a, you know, muscle car or something like that? <laughs> yeah, did not have a muscle car uh, unless you call a 1978 Cordoba a muscle car. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, uh, most, most of the money, I mean, in high school, all... In high school, all most of the money went to fun and fun. Uh, we were we were certainly not poor by any stretch, but we were right down the middle, 
uh, you know, middle class. My yeah. dad, my dad had his own business and he was in the early stages of building that. He ended up owning four pharmacies um, up there in Waterloo and yeah. Denver, Iowa and Parkersburg, Iowa, and Hudson, Iowa. And um, so all the money, you know, I joke with people. It was a little bit like farming in that most farmers, they work their whole life. And when they finish up, they go, man, if I'd known I had this much money, I wouldn't work this hard. <laughs> right, and, and, right. and that's, and if you own your own business and especially small business, it's a lot yeah. like that. Right. That's so, true. Yeah. 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 Most, most of the money went to, uh, you know, funded my activities. And then, you know, once I got into college, I, I being the oldest of five, I paid, paid my way. I was going to say with all those brothers and sisters behind you, you know, if everyone's going to go to college, did, did they all go in the end? Everybody went to college. Yep. That's fantastic. That's terrific. Well, that's quite an accomplishment. Mom and I've got to be very proud about that. So were you recruited to Loris? How did you decide to go there? Being recruited to Loris is kind of an oxymoron. The division three schools in total uh, have athletic programs to try to keep enrollment up because there's right. so much competition for, you know, getting students. And even back then it was, it's highly competitive to get students on campus. And that's really the lifeblood for these small schools. And I was got a bunch of them. And so if you were, um, you know, if you participated in athletics and were any good at all, you had the smaller colleges coming through. So yes, I yeah. was recruited there. Um, really didn't know where I was going to go up until about a month before school started. I was, mm -hmm. I was torn between going to uh, a larger university, uh, but I still had that itch to play football. And yeah. I was pretty good, but I was awfully slow. So the only way I was going to be able to play was to play at a Division three level and ended up being a great experience. That's great. What did you end up studying there? I ended up uh, studying finance and marketing. Okay. I, I went in as an engineering major. It's one of those things. I didn't know what I wanted to do coming out of school and out of high school. Both my parents were in the healthcare profession and both encouraged us not to get into it. Uh, just, <laughs> is that right? <laughs> well, just just because you're tied up on weekends, yeah, right? You've, right. you've got to be there. My dad was in a retail setting and my mom being a nurse, you know, it's not like a typical. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, nine to five, Monday to Friday type of job. Yeah. yeah. With, thir with 13 holidays off. Right. So, right. right. Uh, they encouraged us to look outside. I actually had a, an uncle who was in the insurance, uh, business. He had mm. his own insurance agency. Yeah. And so kind of picked my head up and spent some time with him. Actually, there were two individuals. My dad, one of my dad's closest friends was a, a agent for Northwestern Mutual Life. And then my uncle had his own insurance agency. And so <clears throat> when I went to college, the uh, at academic advisor at my high school said, you're really good at math and science. You ought to mm. pursue an you had to pursue an engineering degree. Right. And so the first year I was at school, uh, they had a engineering program. And after spending a full year studying chemistry and taking Fortran and punching cards, which <laughs> made that no sense. That brings back some memories, Joe. <laughs> yeah. It, it made no sense even back then. I mean, no, I'm old. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm old, but Fortran was already a dead language. I'm like, Oh my why, gosh. Yeah. Why, I remember why, those stacks of cards going to the computer room, right? Why, oh, why are we punching these cards? And the, and the response was, well, that's what we had to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you have to learn how it works, right? I yeah. got to have to learn how it works. And but but anyway, I took I took a marketing class uh, because I was at a liberal arts school, and you could take something at my uh, second semester freshman year, and I'm like, this seems more interesting than that all that engineering stuff I'm doing. Right. So, quit, changed my major and got a finance degree and minored in marketing. 
Nice. And uh, what was that first job you took out of college? So I went to work for a company called Arkwright Mutual, which is now mm -hmm. uh, FM Global. It's a multinational specialty insurer for property insurance for some of the Got largest it. companies. So right in the into world. the insurance industry. Yeah. Right mm -hmm. in. Excellent. And did you uh, have uh, you know people responsibility early on? Did you you know remember the first time you started managing people there? Yeah. So I started off on the uh, went through an underwriting training program. Uh, which was a pretty cool experience. You took this kid out of the Midwest and went to, uh, got on a commercial flight out of O'Hare for the first time ever, flew into Boston and spent seven months up there in a training wow. program. Awesome. And they um, sent me out to the field and worked with uh, a really great mentor to start my career. And then about 18 months in, an opportunity existed to go take over a sales territory in mm -hmm. uh, Milwaukee. And at that point in time, I had two reports. Wow. So that was interesting coming in with, you know, being 26 years old yeah. and, you know, a, a couple of really great ladies that uh, were 15 to 20 years older than I, say I they're was. Older than you. Yeah. What were some of the challenges in those, in that relationship or those relationships? Yeah, probably the biggest uh, challenge was they'd had a individual, they'd both worked for an individual who had been in the territory for a long time. And then they ended up working for the guy who I ended up reporting to initially in a sales capacity and they both had different styles and they were both older. So right. probably the biggest challenge was going in there, you know, who's this young kid and what's, <laughs> what, what's he going to be able to know? Yeah. yeah what, is he, what does he know? <laughs> and uh, probably the first thing I learned is uh, understand what they do, the role that they play mm. and uh, stay out of their way unless something, unless something's going astray. Right. Because they were right. totally capable. They, they they took it upon themselves to train me. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably learned a lot from them as well. Yeah. What yep. were some of the other uh, leadership lessons you got from those early days in management? So probably the biggest one was uh, I was in that role for three years and then had an opportunity to transfer with the company to take over a, a small sales office um, in Dallas, Texas. And again, mm. it was the same type of scenario, only this time uh, I was being put in above somebody who was pretty senior and had been there in that role for a long time, but the business had been really stagnant and flat. And so I was right. coming in to, to shake it up. And probably the biggest thing that I learned in that one was not to come in with um, my own agenda, guns a-blazing. It was to sit down with the team to understand where we thought we had really uh, good toeholds, right. really, really good value propositions, but then to understand where we were where we think they thought we could do better, um, both on the talent side and then, you know, just overall strategy in terms of getting new client. Yeah. And I, I think I gained a lot of, I mean, at first they, everybody was skeptical that you got this young kid coming in here. Who's going <laughs> to, I was 28 years old and yeah, every, yeah. everybody's going, what, what the heck's he going to teach us? Right. And I think taking that extra time to understand where they thought the business was and what we could do better. And then actually, going out and implementing some of those things and executing on a strategy um, certainly didn't hurt. Yeah. Awesome. And then uh, I think you went on the underwriting side, right? Before uh, coming into Beecher Carlson. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, I, that's where I started my career was started. on, okay. uh, on the underwriting side and then tra transferred over into production side. So uh, I was with the same company. Arkwright owned a brokerage group called Hobbs Group. And uh, so I transitioned from underwriting into a direct sales role for the insurance company. Oh, and then, Hobbs and Arkwright were, were uh, related. 
they were they were related okay. uh, until 1997, and I'd already moved over to Hobbs Group and had already migrated here to Atlanta. I've been in Atlanta for 25 years now, right. and in 1997, uh, we had an opportunity to buy Hobbs Group from Arkwright. Mm. Okay. Um, there were there were four executive leaders and about twenty of us that uh, had the opportunity if we could come up with the money to buy it from the parent company. Right. And right. so I was probably twenty nine or thirty years old, one baby, one baby on the way, and was asked, uh, "Okay, Joe, what can you do? Yeah, like got, how, much, how much money you got in the bank? Huh? Yeah, we, we, we've got this great opportunity. Well, wow. I didn't have that much money in the bank, but I did have a 401k there you go. Uh, that I'd been contributing to diligently since day one coming out of school. And if yeah. anybody's listening, that's, if you're not contributing to your 401k plan, you need to. That's right. Smart and strategy. There, and there was, um, you know, they had an opportunity to roll your 401k mm. uh, in, into the investment. And so that's, that's how we all got started. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and we were $25 million in revenue and were able to grow it from 25 to a little over $100 million in wow. the span of <clears throat> six years. Had a liquidity event and thought everything was grand. And then life throws you a curveball. And what was that? <laughs> the uh, company that bought you doesn't do what they say they were going to uh, do with the asset. Right. And so yeah. you go... Well, that's not what we signed up for. So yeah. you, you pick your head up and start looking around and had an opportunity to join a couple of the guys that uh, were at the front end of Hobbs Group to relaunch uh, the Beecher Carlson Beecher brand Carlson, 15, right. 15 yeah. years ago. And you you didn't come in as CEO, as I recall, right? You came in, in the, as in the senior leadership role in, in sales, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And then um, got that up and go going. And, and what size is the business today? So when we sold to Brown and Brown uh, six years ago, we'd gone from 10 million of revenue to 116 million of revenue. Wow. And at that point in time of the sale, we took about 45 million of revenue and peeled it out and, and plugged it into other new and peeled it out and, and plugged right. it into other Brown and Brown million dollar large right. account specialty uh, advisory practice. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And today we're uh, just shy of 116 million again. So yeah, over the past six years, we've been able to grow it by about 45 million bucks. Did you ever think you'd step into that CEO role, Joe? There were times where uh, people had approached me about stepping into it, but it was one of those things where whether it was I was ready or not, met mentally I wasn't ready. Right. Um, even though there were a lot of people asking me to step into that role and kind of age and stage, I don't think I was ready. My kids were all um, in high school or approaching right. college. And, you know, I, it's one of those things where, you know, life moves by pretty fast. If you don't stop and take a look around, you might miss True. something. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'd missed, I'd missed a lot uh, yeah. with building two businesses and the kids growing up. And so initially my, my thought was, let's um, let's continue to do what you're doing, uh, continue building out the uh, sales team and sales leadership team, manage your own book of business and clients, and life was pretty easy. And then 18 months ago, some of the folks that were part of relaunching the brand 15 years ago made a decision to pursue opportunities outside of Beecher Carlson, mm, and right. uh, I was tapped on the shoulder to step in the chair and decide it was time. Yeah. Great, great. And how's that ride been so far? 
uh, tumultuous. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different it, job, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, it's a different job, uh, yeah. for sure. Every, everything you say matters. So there's right. a lot more weight to your words. Uh, but it's, it's been exciting. It hasn't been without its challenges, but it's like anything else. Um, yeah. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> and and what, what's so cool about it, uh, from my perspective, as I look back over the past 18 months, is we've been through the ringer. Uh, yeah. we've, we've had a, a number of teammates that, like I said, elected to pursue opportunities outside of Beecher. And they're all people that I was in the trenches with uh, helping build this business, you know, like I said, going back 15 years ago. Uh, but they, so there, there was natural dislocation right. and there, there was also a lot of outsized noise about it's a really small, even though insurance is a huge industry, uh, when you're as specialized as we are, it's pretty small actually. Mm -hmm. And so there was mm -hmm. a lot of outside noise about, well, it's over, you know, they sold the Brown and Brown, the earnouts up, everybody's going to leave and go do something different. Mm. And the reality is, um, for some people, uh, that was absolutely true, but there were, there's a great group of people here who have built this company, uh, really from the ground Scratch. up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, re yeah. reinvented it and I got a lot of commitment to those folks. Yeah. And, yeah. and what's happened over this 18 months as we've worked through various changes is we've been able to create a leadership team that everybody feels is our team now. Right, right. And so getting people to get in the boat and all row in the same direction, about uh, six months ago, it felt like we'd gone through the knot hole and we're coming out on the other side. Yeah. That's and awesome. so that, that's been cool. Yeah. How, how has your leadership style evolved over time, Joe? I think early on, I was pretty hands-on in, in a lot of respects and certainly was uh, when I first you know, jumped into the corner office, uh, just trying to get my arms around everything that was going on and trying right. to troubleshoot uh, because we, I mean, we turned over our finance team. Uh, we turned over a number of our uh, senior executive team. And so I was really hands-on and probably too involved in a lot of the day-to-day -day, uh, decisions that leaders need to make right. at the end of the day. Right. 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 Um, and so <laughs> What I've, what I've learned the most is, while it's important to know what's going on, you got to let your leaders lead. Mm. You, you've got to give them, uh, you know, be really clear on objectives, communicate what we want to get done, have regular touch bases to make sure that everybody's on track, but let them lead right? and, and, and ask them, you know, what you can do for them versus, you know, telling them what they can do for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to that point, how do you decide when it's time to micromanage or or stay out of the sandbox, which is, it sounds like you try to do most of the time. <laughs> yeah. I, the time when it's the micromanage is when you're in a situation where you've been doing things the same way and the results continue to be lackluster. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, you try to give people direction and objectives, and encouragement. Um, and when it's, you know, when things are staying the same. I mean, if you look at our mission statement, I mean, we lead it off by, you need, you know, we continuously try to challenge the status quo. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And and we need to do that in our business. If we're going to be successful, we need to walk the walk. Right. And, that, and that comes down to what everyone's doing every single day. If you're, um, you know, Bo Schembechler had a great line. He said, what do you do if it's not broke? <laughs> Break it. Yeah. Break it. Because it, whatever you're doing today, eventually is going to become obsolete. So, um, got to reinvent yourself. Yeah. Got to reinvent yourself. Yeah. What about building a company culture? It sounds like you went through such a transformation there, Beecher Carlson, really from, you know, the early days, you know, how, how do you go about doing that? And <clears throat> what kind of a role, you know, have you played really in building out the company culture? So cult culture is a huge thing, right? And it's one thing to say what you want to be. Uh, it's another thing to actually go out and, and become that. And I think um, probably the greatest thing any leader can do is to over-communicate. Mm. Full transparency, communicate, communicate, communicate. And if you're off base, you know, reinforce where we want to go. Right. And, and the other thing about culture is you got to have the right players on the team. Yep. You really people do. In the right seats. Yeah. <laughs> people in the right seats. And, 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 yeah. and if you've got somebody who's a curmudgeon, who doesn't, you know, isn't all in, then you need to, you need to part company with them. As, yeah. As, as yeah. Dip, even if as, they're a top performer. Mm. Even if they're a top performer. Yeah. And, and those we, are the tough ones. <clears> and we, we did that at the end of last year and it was, it was painful when yeah. we did it. Yeah. And I told everybody on the front end when we made that decision that, you know, we're, we're going to take some lumps and the, and the noise from the outside is going to get louder. Right. But trust me when I tell you that, you know, six, nine, 12 months from now, we're going to be better off. And that's exactly what's happened. Yeah. yeah. And most likely the individuals will be too. What would you say is kind of unusual or, or perhaps unique about Beecher Carlson, Jeff, in the culture? What's unique about Beecher Carlson is if you asked any of our competitors, out there is they would tell you we punch above our weight. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is we're, we're competing against the largest um, insurance brokers in the world. Right. We're, we're competing against Marsh, Aon, Willis, Lockton, and a bunch of others that have a lot more scale, uh, a lot more capabilities on paper, and yet we beat them every day. Mm. And the reason we beat them every day is we've got a tagline um, risk management without passion, innovation, and accountability is just buying insurance. And, and we've got <laughs> like a bunch that. of people that believe it. I mean, yeah. they, are, they are passionate about uh, taking care of their customers. They're passionate about coming up with innovative ways to deal with age-old problems and, and, deal, and developing new solutions. And then they're accountable to their, their clients and each other in delivering what we've said we're going to deliver on. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and bring into the company? So we used to use the term, we used to use that term bets. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And we have gotten that out of our vocabulary. We, we invest in people. Mm -hmm. uh, making a bet is, you know, it's low probability, right? The house, house <laughs> is going to win if, if you make bets. So right. we, we, look, we look to invest. And in our business, there's, um, there's a group of people out there that uh, have certainly have a track record. And if they've got a track record uh, and are, are very specialized in a certain area, we're, we're attracted to them. Right. The, the other thing, though, and our, Powell Brown, who's the CEO of Brown & Brown, talks about it all the time, grit. Mm. You know, yeah. I, when, you, when you, you can do these 
personality test and they can let you know whether somebody's got the right aptitude for a certain position. But what, what you can't usually get out of those tests is whether they've got grit. Right. So we look for ways where we can determine whether or not somebody's got grit. And how know, do you so do it, that? How do you, how do you personally determine whether or not people have got the grit? <clears throat> a lot, a lot of it is what are they doing outside of work? Hmm. Right. What, what contributions have they made either? We hire a lot of kids out of school sure. uh, and, and it's highly competitive for those. I'm interested in people that have done something outside of just their academic career right. and that, and not necessarily being the president of their fraternity, although that can be, um, there can be a lot to that, but we're interested in people that have, have gone the extra step that have, right. you know, either community involvement, they participated, um, in some type of athletics or intramurals, athletics or intramurals, you know, there's a competitive right. drive to them and it doesn't hurt if they've actually spent the time investing in themselves through prior internships or other work experience. Well, Joe, the time has just flown by. We do have one last question we ask all our CEO guests, and that's what career and life advice would you give someone that, you know, maybe has their eyes on the corner office someday in their own organization? Yeah, I, probably the best advice I would give them is don't do it for the perceived perks, hmm. you know, the title, the pay, maybe some of the benefits. You, you really got to do it because you want to make a difference. You think you can make a difference and you're prepared to lead in a selfless way. Hmm. If you're not prepared to lead in a selfless way, uh, it's, you know, sitting in the corner office probably isn't for you right. because there's, there's going to always be somebody who's making more money. I, I joke, you know, we did an acquisition earlier this year and everybody was high five. And, and I said, yeah, but we also just picked up a hundred new HR opportunities. <laughs> That's right. Right. So That's right. You, you really got to do it because you, you want to lead, you think you can make a difference and it, it needs not to become about you at that point. It needs mm. to become about the greater organization. Great, great words of advice. Joe C, CEO of Beecher Carlson. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks, Brant. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roy.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.